Exiles is a podcast that explores life following Jesus Christ in South Africa. We want to think deeply about what the Bible has to say about life and talk about what that might mean in the situations God has placed us in. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are not necessarily those held by the host, co-host, or production team. As this is a discussion and not a pure teaching platform, it is up to the listener to engage with the content responsibly. Well, hi there, and welcome to today's episode of Faithful Exiles. It's great to have you with us. And today we're really thinking about a big topic, a topic that relates to what keeps us occupied for most of our waking hours. And yet strangely also a topic that's not that often discussed. Uh, And it's a topic of our work. Um, How does Monday's work relate to Sunday's worship? How does my faith in Jesus Christ inform my work? With us today um, for today's episode, entrepreneur and venture capitalist Paul Kim, who spent over a decade wrestling with the subject, both in terms of theology and biblical vision, and in terms of concrete practice as well. We ask Paul about his background. Uh, We hear why this is such an important subject to think about. We discuss key aspects of a faithful biblical theology of work, and we get practical about what this means for this coming Monday. This really was a great discussion with Paul, and we hope that it stimulates you to think about your own work in fresh ways. So, Paul, I thought we'd begin this morning maybe by just getting to know you uh, a little bit better. Uh, You started your career as an actuary. Um, You're now an entrepreneur uh, running a business. Can you maybe share a little bit about that journey with us? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I didn't start my career off as an actuary, technically speaking. Uh, the actuarial profession is quite uh, strict on uh, how we label ourselves. Um, so I started off uh, working in the actuarial field, uh, still uh, qualifying at that point in time, and uh, left the industry after a year and a half to pursue uh, business, uh, starting my own endeavors. Um, and uh, I spent the last 10 years uh, building businesses in very difficult environments, uh, first in education uh, and thereafter it's, uh, in uh, financial services for blue-collar workers. Um, and it's been an interesting journey. I begrudgingly finished uh, or became a, or qualified as an actuary along the way. Um, but even that, God has turned uh, into something that's really valuable for me and I've uh, kind of appreciated it toward the end and I'm really loving uh, the blessing that um, that that skill set has given me, um, so um, that's been great. Um, I'm an entrepreneur, was an entrepreneur, um, but now kind of sitting on the other side of the table as an investor. Um, so that's also been uh, interesting, uh, moving to the dark side um, of the equation. Uh, interesting learnings. Well, I think uh, two things that I wanted to mention. Um, the first is that. At the end of the day, when you're building business as complicated uh, as it can be, it starts off with the basic building block or who are you trying to serve and why are you trying to do that? And it doesn't matter what type of business that you're creating and what type of aspirations you have. Ultimately, if you don't start there, I think you can quickly get lost. Um, And you do see a lot of companies get lost. A lot of entrepreneurs get lost because they kind of mix that up with, what am I trying to get out of this business? Or how do I want to succeed as opposed to uh, who do I want to serve or how do I want to serve them? Um, the second learning is um, I started off in Edge Campus with a very idealistic way of thinking about business and uh, wrote off a whole bunch of other businesses because they weren't following this godly way in uh, abbreviated or in, in commas. Uh, and um, that's not true. They're 
just like God created a diverse set of animals and plants, there's just a diverse uh, range of ways in which to do business. And it's always hyper-contextual. So what I've learned over the years is not to copy and paste, to learn from that business in that context and understand what you can learn from them to apply into your context. So yeah, God's, uh, God is amazing. He's uh, infinitely creative and he's given us a, an amazing range of ways to build business. Mm-hmm. And so always start off with your client or your customer and that specific context and build a business around. Okay, you just ma- mentioned that you recently transitioned from Pixar to Redemptive Capital. You're moving to into more into this investment space. Um, can you maybe share us a little bit about the vision of, of Redemptive Capital? What kind of role are you going to be playing? into the future? Um, So Redemptive Capital was an interesting move uh, birthed out of some uh, a a very interesting context. I say that because we had aspirations to start um, Redemptive Capital over a 15-year period, but because of what happened during COVID, um, it accelerated uh, to to now. And so it's been a very interesting journey and it, it went really quickly. And it happened in a very... Uh, unpredictable manner we had certain aspirations of how this would turn out and what would be the uh, steps leading towards the formation of redemptive capital but uh, god in his infinite wisdom uh, did some amazing um things that we are just i'm still personally reeling from in terms of how did this all come about um but in essence redemptive capital was started out of our experience at pixar Uh, i worked at pixar from 2015 to 2020 a five-year stint from september to september um, and uh, we had such an amazing vision. We felt that we had the right motivation and the right um, vision. And uh, but it's been really challenging. And uh, there were often times where they were, we had some serious setbacks, serious uh, failures, and deep questioning, um, and thinking through why is it so difficult to do good? Um, why isn't God making it easier for us to do good? And no. A deep uh, introspection of ourselves as well as the company led to us realizing there were so many other non-financial services problems we needed to solve before we were given the luxury of tackling financial services problems. Uh, in essence, PIX is about solving the financial health crisis that South Africa face, uh, faces with its uh, blue-collar uh, population. Um, and so we realized that, and, and the whole point of redemptive capital is to create an environment to put out infrastructure so that other companies that want to do good amongst uh, the blue-collar population, which includes employers, uh, we're going to make it easy for them to do that. Um, you, you often come across an employer or individuals that after three or four years of trying, they're just jaded by how difficult it is, and they've almost kind of given up. Um, and we feel that it's not a function of their desire, it's not a function of their specific company, but it's just a function of the poor infrastructure that exists in these populations. Uh, another way of framing it is this idea of poverty tax, that the poor have to pay this poverty tax, and it's primarily because just it's not efficient um, in that space. So um, that's, the, the, that's the mission. We believe that we're going to be doing that through companies um, as opposed to us doing it ourselves. We want to enable others. And uh, we want to do it through employers. So uh, we're not going to engage directly with uh, the low-income population or blue-collar workers. We want to work through one of their key stakeholders, which is uh, the employer. Um, From our perspective, blue-collar worker, low-income worker is the 
uh, intended recipient of the impact that we're trying to create, uh, we use that interchangeably, but the definition we use internally is um, anyone in South African citizen or living in South Africa that earns under six and a half thousand rand a month, so under the tax bracket. A couple of unique things that, um, uh, unique characteristics um, for redemptive capital are one, um, we are not an NPO. We are deeply uh, pro-business, pro-profit. Um, we feel that uh, NPOs are your last resort. And the reason why they're leaned on so heavily now is because business has um, neglected its first mandate um, and uh, deemed a second-class citizen. And uh, unfortunately, NPOs and churches have had to step into um, the mix. Um, we're also uh, based on permanent capital. So if you're from an investment background, you'll know what that means. But for those who aren't, uh, we've got no exit agenda. So we're not trying to build businesses and sell them and continue in that fashion. Uh, we only build something or pursue a partnership that is going to build a business if it fits um, our bigger uh, puzzle that we're trying to uh, build. Uh, which brings me to the, the third unique uh, kind of characteristic, which is we don't have an investment thesis. So typically investment fund would have an investment thesis. They think, uh, for example, clean tech, you know, so that you invest in solar, you invest in uh, clean water and so on and so forth. But um, we take it one step further than that because we're trying to tackle one big problem and we feel that there's one big solution made, out of a, made up of a whole bunch of smaller solutions that need to work together in order to solve this bigger problem. So we've got this big puzzle that we're trying to um, build and there's little you know, puzzle pieces that we need. And when we back a business, it fits that puzzle piece, but it also needs to fit into the bigger puzzle. Otherwise we won't invest in it. So we really aren't out there to make money primarily. It's more to solve the bigger problem that we see. Uh, and some other smaller things, um, we are deeply collaborative. Um, kind of, if you go back to Genesis, you, you get this idea of um, it being made in the image of God, uh, deeply relational. Uh, the first act of vulnerability that I think we see in, in Genesis is that woman was created. I mean, we're talking pre-fall, so there was, uh, I suppose, what you could call a very healthy relationship between God and man, but yet woman was created. Why? Um, and so we believe in working with others uh, and we're not going to be the ones, we're not going to be the saviors. It's only by working deeply with others that we'll be able to make uh, progress against this problem. Um, and then the last thing I probably wanted to mention is um, as much as we are investors, we also have a deep respect for building companies. And so we also get our hands dirty. Uh, also kind of this idea of God uh, made the earth and the planets uh, and the animals and the uh, plants, he got his hands dirty. It wasn't just an intellectual process. So we don't sit there in the background, just put money in. Uh, we get our hands dirty and we co-build these ventures with a lot of the, the, lot of the entrepreneurs. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. That's an exciting venture. And you've really picked up a little bit on, on that sort of theology of work underlying what you're doing uh, going back to Genesis. But let's think about that uh, a little bit more. Um, you've clearly spent a lot of time thinking about this subject. Um, why do you think it's important for Christians to be thinking these things through? What, what I do Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, um, isn't what God's really concerned about, my prayer life, my personal devotions, my going to church. Um, why would you say it's so important that Christians actually think through um, this particular area and how we apply the biblical vision, the biblical story? to our work? 
Um, yeah, that's a that's an interesting uh, question um, because it's so uh, essential in its nature. Um, it's like asking, you know, wh why do we need oxygen? Um, and the reason why I said is if you kind of take a step back and you think about um, us as human beings and if God is the creator um, and the Bible is sufficient, um, then you, you need to appreciate that um, the theology that's given to us or uh, God's instruction that's given to us should kind of cover our entire life 24-7 from birth to death. And if you look at work being a third of your life, or I suppose when, you, when you're 18 or 22 till you retire, if you do retire in, that, in the traditional sense, that's a large chunk of your life that many people just don't have an answer for. So what happens is that um, you inevitably have a gap um, because ultimately you need to believe something in order to act. And so you are acting, which is in this case work. And uh, you're driven by a certain set of assumptions. It's just, uh, I've always said that there's nothing that you do that doesn't have an underlying belief system, it just because otherwise you wouldn't do it. So what happens is there's, there's this vacuum that's created, and this vacuum then absorbs whatever else exists in the world. So I think today's uh, modern working man or woman, you've got a couple of things that are unfortunately um, have infected you instead. So this idea of American dream, um, uh, kind of you work hard, you get rewarded and you can enjoy uh, it for yourself. Um, this, uh, from a Christian perspective, I think um, this idea of uh, or a hyper focus on individual salvation, um, which only focuses on our spiritual standing before God, um, has unfortunately created this vacuum. And then a, a extreme westernization expressed in hyper-individualism. So um, what I mean with that is often when people look at work, you, you, the two questions is what are your passions and what are your talents? It's, it starts off with self, um, which I don't think is the biblical model. Um, so um, I start off with an experiment, a thought experiment, which is let's go back to the Bible. Let's remove... Uh, Genesis 3 all the way up to Revelations um, 20 and let's imagine for a second that the only part of the Bible that we had or Bible was basically Genesis 1, 2, Revelations 21, Revelations 22. What would we have been doing? And if you look at that, specifically uh, Genesis 1, 27 to 29, you see something interesting. It's very clear from those three verses that we wouldn't be, our mandate wouldn't be just to read our Bible every day and um to seek the salvation of others because, or actually Jesus hadn't, Jesus technically wouldn't have been necessary at that point in time. There would have been no one to evangelize. So you see this idea of the creational mandate being discussed. Uh, the first part of the creational mandate is to establish who we are, so made in the image of God. I think that's verse 27. And verse 28, there's, there's three things there. Um, be fruitful and multiply, uh, dominion, and then rule over all the animals uh, sea animals, uh, birds, uh, land animals, and that's and and then extend to the far ends of the earth, right? Um, and that's a very interesting mandate because on the one hand it's incredibly broad, but it's also incredibly direct. Uh, you can kind of ask yourselves, what am I doing to fulfill that mandate in my work? Um, and uh, quite clearly, it doesn't just cover evangelism, reading your Bible. It kind of asks you to get going with this, um, the, with the real world. Uh, Tim Mackey, if I remember correctly, the guy, one of the co-founders of the Bible Project, says that hidden. You must remember that that Genesis was written for a, uh, an audience back then, and uh, there was no planes, there were no submarines, and for them to have heard 
uh, rule the sea animals and the birds in the air would have been remarkable. How on earth are we going to rule over the birds in the air? So somewhere in that statement was an airplane, a submarine, um, all these nature documentaries that we watch. We can only rule the birds in the air if we understand how they work. So cameras, uh, science, all of that was required uh, in order for us to fulfill that mandate. So um, that's what leads me to the conclusion that uh, hyper-focus on individual salvation has been a disservice to some extent uh, because it doesn't cover the original intent with which we were created. It only speaks about what was broken and our response to that, which um, is just half the story. Um, some other things from Genesis which are interesting, um, you see this idea of a, a raw uh, but good environment that God set for us, um, meaning that he, that was just a starting point. Um, you also, from Revelations 21 and 22, you see God giving us a sense of what we should be aiming for. So there is direction. There is a, a mukbant or end destination that uh, we, we've been given. We see this idea that God built us to be co-creators. Um, so I think verse 5, 2 verse 5 is, you know, no plants had... Um, grown or had come up yet because it hadn't rained and man hadn't tilled the ground yet. You also see God taking a step back and let, letting man name the animals, which is just remarkable because I quite clearly God knew what the name should be of each animal, but he just took a step back. There was no guidance from the text. There's no sense that guidance was given or suggestions. Maybe that one should start with an A or a B. Like It's just incredible. Um, so co-creators... Um, and then there was the last aspect of work that we should consider is how important work was, uh, because in Genesis 1, you, you get a sense of the ratios, work-rest um, being six, six to one. So six-sevenths of God's time in the first seven days, well, I suppose the seventh day, day is never ending, you can, you, can, you can argue that, but it was an incredible amount of time working. Um, and I think today, because we see work so negatively, we talk about work-life balance, which is not true. It, it's kind of we have life and work is a big component of that and rest is the component of, of that so yeah that's that's yeah. um some of the thinking there something i found fascinating about what you say is that kind of undermining or devaluing of work so i come from a specific kind of church background where people will always speak of like their calling that God has for them and right now the work that they're doing is temporary that they're kind of like Joseph in their prison right now I have to work eight or five now and it sucks but one you know God has a glorious thing in store for me one day and there's that kind of implicit under undermining of, of the task that God gives us to do in creation itself and uh, yeah, I, I just think what you said was fascinating it reminds me of uh, the book creation regained that idea of like the blueprint kind of in creation itself, and we are mm. co-laboring and bringing that the potential out of that as God has given us that vocation. Right? Amen to that, yeah. Yeah, there's just that healthy tension between, and this is a big one, this idea of I'm always, uh, you know, what's more important, the journey or the end destination, and what's the value of each, you know? So this idea of I'm in the prison and I'm just biding my time until I'm out of prison, I think that's a very unhealthy way of looking at it. The reason is if you zoom back out again to the biblical story, you see a very interesting uh, picture laid before us. And it's something that I think a lot of Christians, uh, I think especially from the charismatic background, get wrong is when it comes to the kingdom of God. This, the saying that we're building the kingdom of God is actually biblically, I think, false. Because what you see in Revelations 22 or 21 is that God brings the new Jerusalem down from heaven. 
So we've got a very interesting tension where we're told, aim in that direction, but you're never going to fulfill it, which means, hold on, we're actually only here for the journey. The journey is what sanctifies us. The journey is what uh, purifies us. The journey is what allows us to appreciate the new kingdoms and the new earth, the perfected city when it comes down. So if, if you get yourself into a rut thinking, if only I get there, life will be better. If only I get there, I will then truly serve God. I think biblically there's no founding for that. I think God intentionally, the journey is what is more important for us. Our obedience, and it's the same thing with man's responsibility, God's, uh, God's uh, sovereignty. God is sovereign, which means he's inevitably responsible for the outcome, which automatically means we're not involved in that. It's just our obedience. So again, the journey for humans is more important than the arriving at any final destination because there is no such final destination until God brings it. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's explore that a little bit further. What does God's redemption in Christ mean, particularly uh, for our work? Um, for me, I think one of the big biblical themes that you've picked up on that's important is this idea of being created in the image of God, that image being perfected ultimately in the future. Um, but now that language that we find in the New Testament of those who've been redeemed in Christ being renewed uh, in the image of God. What does that mean, particularly for the area of our work? Are there particular, you know, how we think about work now as those who have been redeemed in Christ, you know, our attitude is similar to the world, you know, how should our thinking about work be different? Yeah, so that's, that's a, I mean, that's a very broad question. I, I mean broad, and you're going to have to answer some of the sub-questions hidden in that question. So um, I, I, I think it's every good endeavor where I kind of appreciate that the benefit of answering questions through a uh, biblical story lens, a biblical story having four components, uh, creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. And so you can kind of look at any topic through that lens. So if you look at work, um, the four parts, the way I analogize it is there was a starting point in Genesis 1, and then there was an end destination, and God said, go, destination B. In Genesis 3, we get kind of taken off this path, and we start veering completely south. So imagine we were, we were started off in Cape Town, and God taught us to head for Joburg. It was going to be zigzags. I don't think it was going to be a perfect straight line because uh, God allows us to um, press forward into risk and uncertainty, and he doesn't give all the answers. Um, but w because we dis disobeyed God and we wanted to do things our way, uh, we are now heading towards Australia. And there are multiple attempts by God to course correct us. Um, so you see uh, the first attempt, which is... Uh, if I recall the first attempt, which is a flood, complete decimation, let's start again. Let's try that. So, you know, kind of let's re, uh, uh, redirect ourselves to Joburg. We're currently over the, which is at Atlantic Sea here. Yeah, it's Atlantic Sea. Let's try to go back to um, Joburg. And unfortunately, that is a, not a great attempt because uh, soon after it comes off the boat, we see that event with Ham and uh, Noah, right? And uh, kind of oh, wow, it was barely a couple of days and we're now back into the mess again. And then we see later on there's another attempt by establishing the law and that also doesn't work. And then there's more laws and then that also doesn't work. And then you get to a point like, what on earth is going to be the solution? Um, and then Jesus rocks up. And what Jesus does is he not only points at a, a better way, he also guarantees it. So in, in the analogy, it's almost like he lays down like a, plot uh, a flight path that's almost guaranteed that we can't deviate from and that he secured because he's ultimately defeated satan uh, and the power of death which is a consequence of sin 
Um, so the way I see work then effectively is we had an original mandate, um, and I call them biblical values as opposed to Christian values for work. Um, and by saying that, just a quite a small detour, I think non-Christian companies can apply biblical values to their work. I think Apple is a fantastic example of how its biblical values are well expressed in a company. Um, and, and then the fall happened. So then those three curses uh, on, um, on, on our work, specifically actually for, for man, uh, the pronouncement was on man was uh, around his work. And we can go into that, this idea of um, thorns and thistles. So sometimes you work hard, but the end result is something that's unintended. I often use the Facebook example. Uh, they wanted to connect the world, but like right-wing extremists have now have also now have a platform and there's unintended consequences from that. This idea of... Um, uh, toil, um, uh, this idea of the uh, eating from the sweat of your brow, which is directly contrasted from the Garden of Eden, which had a lot of abundance. Now we have to work in order to eat. Anyway, and so the idea is to understand how has sin marred our work, uh, because work was inherently good, but we're feeling certain effects of that. Uh, in today's language, it would be burnout. It would be um, frustrated. It's I'm not suitable for this work, or I don't feel uh, passionate about it. And then we get to redemption. And the redemption is really cool because, remember, Jesus has bought and guaranteed this flight path back. Meaning, we know that if we work with a redemptive heart, redemptive intentions, whether we see the fruits here on earth or not, we know God will honor that. So um, sometimes I think Christians... Uh, or uh, overzealous about if I do the right thing, I'll see the reward now. You know, I want to serve these farm workers with financial health in, in, in solutions. And then the results don't come. You're like, but I thought I was being obeying God. And what we've done is we've mistakenly thought that our obedience must be rewarded here and now. But ultimately, the biblical story in, isn't that because, you know, we see Jesus um, saying that there will be suffering. Uh, the apostles writing about suffering here on earth, but in the long term, that the Outcome is guaranteed. So um, the redemption is things like sacrifice, forgiveness, uh, grace in our work. Um, and we can talk through some of the, the impact of that a little bit later on. And then renewal, it's just a reminder of where we're heading, uh, which is this uh, perfected city that we're going to live into. And the, the interesting thing about that is, in I think it's in Revelation 21, where it speaks about the kings can bring their glory into the heavens into the new city, which is such a remarkable verse because even though we're not building the kingdom of um, God ourselves because the Jerusalem is coming down, somehow there will be a transfer of our work here into the new heavens and the new earth. So the two questions that kind of I keep thinking about is, firstly, in my work, am I preparing myself to be a citizen of the new heavens and the new earth? Will I be in such a state that I actually I will feel comfortable in the new heavens and the new earth and know what to do and how to live? Secondly, is the work that I'm doing, I'm really excited about the prospect of seeing the fruit of my labors when I get to the new heavens and the earth. And God will point at these things. It looks like this now, but I used you in uh, 2020 to lay down these components that led to this. And I just can't wait to see that. Mm. And so that's really exciting. And it speaks against this idea that God is just going to destroy everything and start from scratch. I don't think you can see that. I think God's going to take our labors and somehow 
automatically, uh, if you come from a tech background, um, turn it into this the end product that you had this aspiration for but could never reach. Mm. And that's deeply exciting for a builder like myself. I think that's very important. I often think of Jesus' words in the parable about, you know, even the least cup of water given to someone won't fail to receive its reward. We might not always see that reward immediately uh, in this life, but your desire to provide the poor with financial services you might not see that reward, but that desire that's driven by the gospel will ultimately receive its reward. Yeah. Um, Christian, do you have any further thoughts or questions? questions? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think it was interesting. Uh, so, I, I mean, as much as, uh, you know, Peter would talk about, like, the elements dissolving with fire, and, you know, kind of the finality of that, you do also have uh, John in Revelation. Uh, I think that's also a sermon by Mackie that I heard on this where he speaks of uh, the language in the Greek is of God making all things new mm. as opposed to making all new things. And there is that sense of uncertainty. How How is all this mess with all like woven with sin going to somehow translate into the new heavens and the new earth? And yet somehow there is some component to that, that mm. we are partnering with Christ as he's working out his mission. And Amen. it's going to be interesting to see how that works itself out. Amen. Yes, there's always that continuity and discontinuity. I think even there in Peter, it's interesting, the, the model that he bases that on is the flood. So there's this, um, this recreation. It's not a complete um, destruction. Um, there's continuity and discontinuity. Paul, let's, let's um, explore a little bit about the idea of money and thinking about working for money. Um, or even before that, let's think a little bit about um, the way we value work. I think this is a very important one, especially in our South African context. Um, we tend to value the work that brings in the big paycheck. Um, how do you think God thinks about that? How, does a how is a biblical vision different to just those are the people doing the really important work, the ones who get the big paycheck at the end of the day? Yeah, so um, I think firstly we need to appreciate that there is a ledger, an accounting ledger in heaven, that God is um, God for each individual and his obedience. Um, now, we can talk about it in two respects. We can talk about it in terms of salvation. We can talk about it in terms of accountability. And I think in Revelations, you see a distinction between the two. So this ledger doesn't get you into heaven. It doesn't give you eternal life, uh, salvation. Only Jesus can do it do that for you uh, your name is in the book of life uh, based on whether you accepted jesus or not but at the same time you cannot throw away this deep idea that resonates through the entire new testament and the old testament that there will be accountability for your actions now i start off with that because money is a very interesting tool that's given to us by god as a way of reducing friction so money originally, uh, as far as I understand, was a evolution, not an evolution, a, an innovation uh, in the bartering world, right? This idea is uh, there's, there's huge friction in trying to calculate how many chicken for cows at which time and then how do you convert that to bread. And it's a really helpful way of simplifying that. But unfortunately, what happens in simplification is, is a, a loss of fidelity. You lose out on certain things when um, you simplify Um so what do you lose out on when it comes to work and money? Well, firstly, the amount of money that you get paid is a function of two things. One, obviously your work, but two, and maybe more importantly, and that's the hidden assumption, is how society at that point in time values your work. Okay. 
So those two components leads to a number. Okay, and remember I said we lost, we lose fidelity. So a number now represents two components, but the number is lost that fidelity. Problem is, we as humans, we as Christians, as people, we reverse engineer that number backwards to imply a certain value. So we look at a number and we say, oh, that's a high number, therefore there is a lot of value. But because we lost the fidelity of what that number represents, we automatically assume the world's value of that time or that work without realizing it. So I think that's the, the, the problem with looking at money only as the um, metric for why uh, uh, work is important. You are hiddenly assuming how the world values that work instead of how God values the work. So the way I have simplified it for myself over time is, and I've struggled with this for a very long time uh, under the, uh, the banner of stewardship. If you start off with this idea that everything is a gift, then actually work is a gift, and how am I supposed to steward that? And then money is a gift, and how am I supposed to steward that? So in my head, I'm trying to break down this idea as I work and I earn something. Because then automatically you start thinking like an owner. You, you were involved in that and therefore you get to uh, use that for yourself. It's almost like even money itself is given to you um, as a gift and how are you going to steward that? So yeah, that's the way I, I think about money and value. And it's I am deeply uh, aware that right now my skill set actually yada, 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 um, that is perhaps overvalued relative to other works. Um, and so um, I don't see the amount of money that I earn as, a, um, as defining how much my work is valued in front of God. Uh, ultimately, you see uh, Colossians 3.23 that perhaps breaks all of this down, which is work as if you're working from the Lord, uh, which means that ultimately the, the value of the work, I think, is derived from the uh, work giver, um, uh, I think Keller uses the example of Obama asking for a cup of coffee. Trust me, you're going to work bloody hard to get a really amazing cup of coffee if Obama asks it for you, right? So it's the, the requester that really elevates the, the value of the work. And I think we forget that. Mm. Um, and I think especially in our own context where there's large unemployment, I think especially in the church, we really need to value all kinds of work. And I think that's another biblical emphasis um, I think when you look at the Apostle Paul, you know, honoring those who work with their hands, you know, the Greco-Roman elites in the first century certainly disdained that kind of getting your hands dirty, that embodied work. And I think even in that sense, uh, the Bible gives us a very different um, perspective there. I think let's um, let's begin to think practically now for. So can I say two things about that? Yeah, sure. Just sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is not my thinking; it's other people's thinking. But that, that that point you make is very interesting, especially in today's age with the knowledge economy and the fourth revolution coming, um, and uh, and it's it's almost like a, a implicit or explicit design for manual labor for. Uh, Blue-collar work, I think South Africa specifically suffers from that, and we bypass a couple of steps like industrialization, too many engineers relative to artisans, too many doctors relative to nurses. It's just this idolization of a tertiary degree at the expense of uh, actually the building blocks of the economy. And uh, what's remarkable in the biblical story is two things. Again, um, God, Garden of Eden, I mean, he got his hands dirty proverbially, but I think also physically because, you know, he made man out of dust and breathed life into him, so his hands got dirty uh, to some extent. And also Jesus came as a carpenter. He could have come at any other point in, 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 create, in time, but he came as a carpenter. And that's just, I think, he knew what was coming, this uh, obsession about the theoretical and knowledge and just 
blatantly in the face of that, I'm coming as a carpenter, I'm working with my hands. So that's just fascinating. The Bible has those two points. And interesting, that connection as well. Jesus ultimately bears the crown of thorns as well, the thistles and thorns. Um, so in, in, in that sense, that he redeems work in that sense as well. Mm. Paul, I think another question that often comes to mind is we often divide the world of work into your business where you're working for profit and your NPOs, your NGOs, where you don't work for profit. And often we see that those really doing God's work are those who do the kind of NPO, not-for-profit work. Uh, how would you answer that? Um, we often have this idea that money is in some sense tainted. Um, is it wrong to work for profit? How would you answer that question? Yeah, I think um, uh, one short statement and then a longer answer. I think uh, I would encourage those that say that um, to actually provide me with text in the Bible that differentiates those, those two and elevates the one at the expense of another. I just don't think you see the secular and sacred divide. I see. I think you see it in, in working in harmony and kind of, you know, uh, two uh, the, the pieces fit together. Um, unfortunately, you see it in, in churches as well, this, this idea of evangelism versus social justice, right? It's again, it's one of those dichotomies that just doesn't exist. It goes hand in hand. The longest statement I wanted to make about profit because unfortunately, like I said earlier, business has been tainted. It's seen as a second-class citizen. Uh, often what reaches the press is all the bad ways in which business operates. So a lot of people who aren't in business just look at this in just a very unhealthy way. Um, unfortunately, sometimes uh, warranted because there are some really uh, nasty uh, character, uh, actors in this space. Um, but and it, it's don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So profit is an interesting idea. First, I often ask these questions when people write things or this. Well, who created profit, the idea of profit? Was it the devil or God? And that immediately kind of creates a dichotomy that you've got to deal with. Wait a second. What is wrong with profit? So I would argue, and I'll substantiate it now, that profit was inherently created by God, that the devil and human nature and the world twisted. It's not something that inherently the devil um, created. Now, what is profit? So let's define it quickly. So value created, a subset of which is value captured. And so JP, you receive a certain value from the service I uh, provide. I capture some of that value by charging you a price. And then there is a cost of creating that value. So the difference between the value captured and the cost of the value cre creation, you call that profit. Uh, you can differentiate between um, kind of gross profit and then overall profit. Gross profit being on that specific item that gets sold. What are you... What are the profit margins you're making? And then, you know, you still need to pay overheads, office, you know, administrative staff, ta uh, staff, and so on and so forth. Are you doing enough volume to cover that? The hidden assumption here is, is quite interesting to think through is, how is that even possible? So what has God built into the fabric of the world that allows for that equation to exist? Because nothing is possible outside of God allowing for it to be possible. So it's the same idea with gravity, you know. Um, why does someone fall off the cliff? Is it because they jumped or is it because gravity exists? And then you can argue it's both, but I would argue if you, you know, step off the cliff and the gravity doesn't exist, you're not going to fall to the bottom. So the, you falling to the bottom is a function of gravity existing. And the same thing with profit. So how do I substantiate this? So let's, let's go back to Genesis um, the, uh, 128, if I remember correctly, or 129. The first one is uh, be fruitful and multiply. Now, I've always read that in the context of procreation. Uh, 
But supposedly the fruitful is, is more expansive than just multiplication in terms of numbers. It's also fruitful in you can take something and it can turn into something uh, with margin to spare. Now, if you take that into account, you see this idea making more sense that we that God gave us a raw environment. He said, end up a, with a city. And like if anyone's worked in a garden and you suck at it, you realize quite quickly it's very hard to go from a garden to a city unless you are profiting from some of your efforts. A great example of this is subsistence farming. I mean, that's the idea is basically you're just working to eat. Like you can't worry about anything else because all your effort, remember the cost of value creation, is going into value capturing, which is the food, and there's no margin to do anything else with. So as a society, we couldn't move ahead towards a city unless profit was emerging uh, in a sustainable way to plow back into other efforts. So I think we uh, serve a God who has built uh, yield or profiting into the mechanism of, of the way the world works, and we need to respect that, understand its original intent. And the original intent is profit allows us to either A, have greater impact, meaning I can take the service to more people. I can serve not just JP. I can serve um, JP um, and Christian and um, uh, Jürgen and the rest of South Africa. And a great example is you know, ShopRite. I reckon ShopRite uh, is not – I'm not going to go into it, but uh, – ShopRite has done more to serve the people of South Africa than probably any church has. Because getting reli food reliably in a cost-effective manner for all South Africans that's allows them to focus on other things, right? Continue to uh, uh, worry about education or housing or other aspects of life. Um, and that's only uh, possible because there was yield in that process of uh, using technology, using people, uh, um, knowledge, or whatever is the case to get to uh, that point. Now, where does profit become a problem? Well, profit becomes a problem for two reasons. Uh, a, uh, when profit is the only motivation. Uh, I think Jeff Duzer first introduced me to the example. It's like basically, you know, getting up every day and being excited about being able to breathe and breathing being the only purpose for the day. Uh, it, it just doesn't make sense and it creates an unhealthy kind of uh, focus for your life. Uh, you exist to do more than just breathing. Breathing enables other things. Uh, it is necessary, but it's not the reason why you, why you live. So uh, what we've seen in the last um, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, maybe, I, I don't know how long back is this, intense idolization of profit at the expense of a whole bunch of other things. This idea of the main purpose of business being shareholder maximization, uh, which inevitably gets simplified to profit maximization. That doesn't work. Profit should be seen as a byproduct of loving, serving people and the environment in which you're operating in. So to that extent, I don't think that there is an upper natural, uh, upper limit to profit. I think as Christians, if you start saying you should only produce a maximum of 50% profit, otherwise you are destroying things around you, I think that's now becoming a legalist. I think there's theoretically going to be an upper bound because of the way in which competition exists and certain natural restrictions in the environment, you just can't extract that much or what people can afford to pay. Um, but ultimately that's defined by how are you loving those that you're serving, how are you loving your suppliers, how are you loving your investors, how are you loving the, the input uh, mechanisms, the environment. The second way in which it goes wrong is when it's, a, it's actually an ignorance or a... Um, it's an ignorance issue because I think it's only now that we realize the long-term effects of abusing the environment. Uh, I reckon 40, 50 years back, 
when the when things were so abundant, people didn't realize the negative consequences of just raiding the earth stores, um, and that's why they could kind of neglect thinking about environmental profit or human profit uh, or everything else outside of uh, financial profit. Now, 40, 50 years down the line, or however long it has been, we're waking up to this idea that, hold on, these other things are important as well. And um, so out of ignorance uh, or out of idolization is where um, profit is unfortunately a very destructive mechanism, but inherently it's a fruitful thing. Yeah, and I think you see that in creation, that abundance that God creates, there's an, there's an overflow um, out of which things can grow. And just thinking particularly about um, the documentary I watched about what Pixar was doing, what struck me there was the one farmer who wanted to share some of that profit and generate more um, through sharing and actually giving his own farm workers an opportunity to work the land themselves. That, that, that struck me as, as very interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, what I found interesting about that is that there, there is kind of like a, a hatred of profit these days, like not just by secular people, but some Christians are becoming more and more kind of Marxist in the way they think about finances, mm. that it's inherently evil and tainted and thinking through like God's creation and profit and these things. I think it's very useful. And I think it's something that Jürgen and I discussed last night is that one of the weird things about the times that we live in is, is the assumption of like the normativity of just wealth. Mm. And because historically after industrial revolution, we are so wealthy in comparison to the past that people think it's normative. Whereas the reality is people not having anything is the state of nature. And then you need to start doing something. And so real, the real question, I think this is that the economist Thomas Sowell points out some of these things. Like the real question is like, why is there wealth and how mm. can we, it's not normal, so to speak. It requires labor and, and extracting things from creation in that sense. Yeah. 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 And, and just to link that up to kind of creation, why is there abundance, right? So God placed us in an environment of abundance, Garden of Eden, in the context of non-abundance, because outside of the Garden of Eden, it's quite, uh, quite sparse. Uh, and so God somehow knew that there was enough in abundance to continue into the future. Obviously, denying God's uh, kingship over us uh, resulted in scarcity, immediate scarcity, this idea that you have to uh, work uh, or eat from the sweat of your brow. Um, and so, but as a Christian, you believe that God is a God of abundance and kind of deeply looking into how do I create abundance for others is one of the ways in which we allow others to flourish, um, which is contrary to this evolutionary mindset, which is uh, the strongest survive or the fit to survive or uh, the American dream is, uh, or not the American dream specifically, because that's just like, I want to succeed. But, you know, um, I win at the expense of others. So if others win, then it's at my expense. Mm. Um, and I think Christians are called to go back to, go back to this idea that God is a God of abundance and we need, he's given us a lot of insight and technology and just clues in the, I'm watching this documentary called the tiny wall that's on Apple TV. And you just look at these things and the clues that are hidden in the animals and the plants that he gives us as technology indicators of how we can even get more abundance out of the earth plant. It's just remarkable that he's done that for us. And we just haven't done enough to acknowledge God and that he's given us these indicators and really deeply researched them, uh, done science on them to understand how do we use that and do um, create abundance in the real world. Let's think through, let's, let's um, think through practically the Christian going to work on Monday morning. Um, what practical steps can they take? I mean, I guess it begins with this, having this big picture theology uh, of work. Um, but should they start a Bible study at work, a prayer meeting? Um, 
what are some practical ways Christians can equip themselves um, to to better serve Christ in the workplace? Um, and I think maybe it's also a point to maybe share some resources as well that you found helpful uh, in this area. Yeah, so um, I think in approaching uh, a lot of these uh, conceptual changes, um, I think um, God has put forward a basic structure for behavioral change, um, which is I think it always starts with theology. Like we uh, said earlier, uh, when we do something, it's from a set of assumptions. So unless uh, when you look at the behavior and it's pointing at something, it's pointing at what you believe about it. So um, if you don't have anything tangible that you're believing, that you think you're believing about work, I can guarantee it's because you can't see it because there's no other way, a reason for why you'd work. Either it's to just make money, to feed your family, which in itself isn't a bad thing. Uh, I think it's a problem when it's the only thing or you want to climb the corporate ladder. Uh, a lot of these things is difficult to see um, because, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that you just live by. So like you're water for a fish, you know, what is water? Um, so the first point is always to use the Bible. The Bible is a mirror. So starting off with theology, what does the Bible actually say um, about work? And I think churches, unfortunately, given what we spoke about earlier, but hyper focus on uh, individual salvation, which, I mean, there's a reason for that. Uh, and so it's always a careful tension in church to preach across multiple topics, but always to remain focused on people don't know Jesus. Um, but starting off with theology, uh, some great resources there, book format, it's a uh, uh, I'd highly recommend um, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. If you are a millennial and you need video or audio, um, you know, there's things like um, Praxis Labs. They've got a really awesome six-part course. Uh, um, uh, Faith and Co. Uh, have got an eight-part course. Um, there's some interesting podcasts. Uh, uh, Tim Mackey, The Bible Project on the, the Human Project or The Creational Mandate is fantastic as a starting point. Then... In order for that to not be just a theoretical exercise where you can regurgitate answers, then re requires a deep meditation, deep reflection. And I found the following four questions really helpful. The first is, who does God want me to love? Because ultimately, work is a function of serving God and serving others. I mean, it directly follows from the two greatest commandments. Uh, it's a reflection of that. Um, secondly, uh, how does God want me to love them? Um, third, what is required to love them in that way? And then fourth, um, what do I have and what's missing? So you can see that talent and passion kind of sits last in the equation, not first. Um, the two things that you should consider when you're doing all of this, um, before we get onto the third point, is if you've never done pull-ups before, it feels unnatural. It's very demotivating the first time you try and do a pull-up, okay? And it is like that for any new skill. And so when you do this for the first time, and I've observed with those around me, you get so frustrated because I'm doing this, where's the answer? And it's, again, this man um, uh, mindset of uh, I did the right thing, so we're, like I need to be given the outcome. I need to be given the answer. It's like a magic trick that you're trying to perform, um, which is not the case at all. So I'm 10 years into struggling with those questions, and it's only now that I feel really comfortable with the way I answer it and the peace around that. So don't give up. You're not going to get to the answer in one go. Um, you know, some Christians have an overnight salvation experience. Other Christians, it's a long process. You might not be fortunate um, in getting the answer overnight. You might be one, uh, someone who has to uh, suffer long obedience in the right, the right direction. Um, so it will take time. Um, and the second is you will definitely get multiple answers because we are uh, kind of, we exist in a community. 
you'll be a father, you'll be a, uh, you might be a, a son, you might be uh, a CEO, you might be an investor, you might be serving in church, in ministry, and so on and so forth. So really the idea there is, right at the beginning I said it's hyper-contextual, um, and you need to think about these questions as an investor, as an entrepreneur, as an employee. And uh, the worst thing you can do is copy-paste into each um, direction. Sometimes you need an NPO, sometimes you need a for-profit. And uh, God has blessed us with a number of different tools in which we can approach a question um, like work. Sometimes you need to charge for your work because that's the right thing for the organization. You, you, handouts doesn't work. But sometimes an organization does need a handout because it's so desperately in the deep. Someone needs to come in and sacrifice their time. And it takes a lot of wisdom to understand that. And the third part is community. Um, sorry, uh, there was the first one was theology, practical, in, in, in introspection and the third part is community to start speaking about this with others um i always use this example of how do you know you're funny uh, well if you tell a joke and you're the only one listening to you have no sense of whether you're funny or not and you need that reverberation with third parties um so getting your life group a church other professionals at work they might also be starting off at the same place which is actually not a bad thing Share, discuss, let other people speak into your life. Let other people give you feedback about what you're seeing. And this is a continu uh, continuous process. We referenced earlier this idea that we'll never reach the end destination. It's all about the journey. And this is the start of a journey for many people. Don't expect lightning strike out of the sky. You need to be this. And then God opens the door immediately tomorrow for you to end up in that position. But that's not the point of this exercise. The point of this exercise is always obedience and sanctification, which is a process, not an end destination. Thank you, Paul. Um, Christian, do you have any particular comments or follow-up in terms of the practical area? Mm, no, I mean, I, I thought that was very enlightening, and uh, I think it's given people a lot to think about. Because yeah. like you say, it's, it's a big chunk of everyone's life, and... Um, I do think, especially the points you make about the hidden assumptions and the beliefs that people operate on, it, it's worth reflecting on, especially as Christians, we're called to that kind of renewing our mind and reflecting on these things in the light of Christ's dominion and his glory. Amen. So thank you for your inputs. Yes, yeah. thank you very much, Paul. And I think especially that point about the community as well. Um, I think a great idea is just to get together and just share, especially those in similar areas of work facing similar kind of challenges, get together, pray, um, think through what wisdom God gives us uh, in the scriptures for addressing those particular areas. Mm. Thank you again, Paul, for being with us. Thank you. And may this continue to bless our thinking in this very important area of bringing together our faith and our work. Thank you.